Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Heil Russell. And I'm Cameron Regal. And on this episode, we are discussing a book. Yes, we're discussing a book on a video game podcast. Of course, it ties in. We are discussing Sea of Thieves, Heart of Fire, the second Sea of Thieves novel, and by extension, second DKU novel, by Chris Alcock, and uh, just came out a couple of weeks ago, and I just finished it 3 a.m., after 3 a.m. this morning. I, I finished the book, and uh, I'm a slow reader, and I like to take everything in, and, and sometimes I get, like, hung up reading something that I'm really invested in, especially if it's official DKU fiction, obviously, but I, I I just want to, like, make sure I absorb all the details and I have, like, a clear picture in mind of what's happening and, and trying to commit it to memory. So sometimes I will just get stuck in this horrible cycle where I'm reading and rereading the same passage again and again and again, and I can't break free from this obsessive-compulsive need to, like, cement everything in, in my cerebral cortex. So, yeah. Um, Cameron, I think you breezed through this novel far quicker than I did. Yeah, um, I had kind of this opposite experience. Um, so, I started reading the novel the day that I got it. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, I've, as in all things, I've learned I don't have any portion control because I told myself, well, I'm starting this now, but, like, Nobody is going to spoil this for me, and the people who I want to talk about it with are going to take a while to read it. So I'm going to take my time, maybe do like a couple chapters a day. Um, so I like started reading it like at my job when there was like a slow period, and then like, and I made it maybe a quarter of the way through the book, <laughs> um, and then. There was a night I had, like, some trouble sleeping. And I, I'm not saying I'm not saying <laughs> that I thought, oh, a Chris Alcock book, that'll put me to sleep. No. Um, <laughs> oh, that's going to be a pull uh, quote. I, on, on, that's going to be a pull quote on this next book. It was, it was genuinely, like, I was not tired at all. Like, my brain was too, um, still running high. I needed to just use some mental energy to do something. Yeah. And... So I started reading, I'm thinking like, well, you know, just read like a couple chapters and maybe my eyes will get tired. Yeah. Um, My eyes did not get tired. I read the entire book that evening. (laughs) Yeah. So for me, like I I knew I had to get it done by today because we were set to record the episode about it today. Like, believe it or not, the conversation is running on a finely tuned schedule this year. And I've got, like, all these episodes planned out that we need to do to correspond to certain dates. And so it it was time to discuss Heart of Fire. So I was like, all right, well, so long as I have it read by September 10th, 
which which is the date we're recording this, then I will be fine. And life got very hectic very quickly, and all of a sudden, I found that I didn't have much time to read it. And so, by the time I got to yesterday, I still had about 150 pages to go. <laughs> and so, which is almost insurmountable to me because as i as i said my reading process when it comes to fiction that i really am invested in especially if it, if it ties into a larger shared narrative as is you know rare shared universe the dku um and it, i was like i don't know how i'm gonna do this but what what it amounted to was uh just deciding okay from eight o'clock on 8 p.m. onward, I will read this and I will read this until I am done. And only when I'm done will I go to bed. And I have been taking uh, Sudafed just because of the late August, early to mid September allergies that I suffer from. A lot of the like the grasses that grow this time of year, I'm apparently allergic to. And so I was basically like hopped up on pseudo. Re- reading this book until three in the morning i'm like oh wow it's like i'm on meth okay this is <laughs> this is really painting a glamorous picture of my life but uh it really kept me focused a- and i was able to overcome my weird mental hang-ups when it comes to reading novelized fiction and uh yeah i quite enjoyed it but i feel like i've been hit by a weary ball from captain flameheart's forces right now so Apologies if I make any uh, larger than normal malpropisms or just weird turns of phrase or I just stumble over my own tongue. It's because I am exhausted. (laughs) So what I do for this podcast and for this website, the bodily punishment I put myself through, I just hope you know, all of you know how dedicated I am to the cause. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, I was so engrossed that I read the entire thing a couple weeks back or so, and you have it a lot fresher in your mind. So, you know, we're starting off on a great foot here to talk in detail about this book. Well, before we try, before we try to talk in detail about it, um, I want to point out that we don't want to spoil the entire thing for our listeners, because the book is still relatively new. I mean, it, it is new. It's not even relatively new. It is still new. Uh, some bookstores probably don't even have it on their shelves yet. And we're going to preserve some of the bigger twists and surprises, at least on this episode. You know, I, I don't want to say it's going to be completely spoiler-free, because that's not true, but we will not be divulging some of the bigger twists and uh, realizations uh, that that come about in the book, of which there are actually several. So not spoiler-free, but not spoiler-heavy either. I I would recommend, honestly, going into the book not knowing anything about it. Yeah. Because it's... Yeah. In fact, you know, just just turn off this episode right now. <laughs> you know, stop stop listening. <laughs> if you're if you're on the fence about getting it, maybe listen to this episode because we we will maybe convince you one way or another to read it. But yeah, I guess I guess how I would say is if you're a diehard Sea of Thieves fan and you're just chomping at the bit to get another Sea of Thieves story, 
then you might want to go in blind. But yeah, if you're on the fence or you're you're curious about this or you're not a Sea of Thieves regular, then yeah, we can maybe kind of <laughs> kind of convey why this is such a big deal. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I, I always view stuff like this even if you're not interested in it you might be interested in it as kind of uh a tourist fan like obviously my my fandom is concentrated in the donkey kong universe and the shared rare universe but i also enjoy watching other fandoms and how they interact with their properties. So if you just want to do like this voyeur thing this episode and, and see how we engage with our second ever official expanded universe novel, uh, then then please uh, keep keep listening. And there will be a follow up episode coming very, very soon where we will openly talk about some of the bigger WTF moments in Heart of Fire and uh, so, so we're not just saying, like, we're never going to get around to this. It's coming sooner than you think. But uh, this episode is basically going to still be relatively safe if you don't want the experience ruined. All right, before we get started, I do want to give a quick plug to the DK Vine Twitch channel at twitch.tv forward slash DK Vine. You can also find it at dkvine.com forward slash Twitch. We stream roughly two to three times a week, depending on the week. It's generally Sundays. We stream the Sea of Thieves sessions we play every week. DK Vine Stream of Thieves. And in fact, I believe tomorrow, well, it's going to be yesterday when most of you are listening to this for the first time. Uh, but we're, we're actually playing the tall tale that most readily ties in to this book. So, you know, it, it's it's kind of weird how it all synced up. We were trying to replay the tall tales in advance of this novel, and then, you know, the, the weekly grind of the game, plus the new stuff that was being added, like the adventures, you know, made us fall behind, but everything's kind of syncing up, so we're getting to the the true connective tissue of the tall tales the same weekend we're recording this uh, podcast, so yeah, we uh, there's two especially pertinent ones, and we've kind of like made a sandwich of both of them <laughs> right. with this episode, <laughs> right? So I actually wouldn't change it; they kind of worked out perfectly as far as like having the novel be more resonant and therefore making the tall tales more resonant with the experience of the novel. But yeah, we play Sea of Thieves. Practically every Sunday, um, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. BST. So check that out. If you're on the fence about Sea of Thieves, if you're a rare fan who still hasn't gotten into it, and you want to see how other rare fans engage with it, and especially, you know, like-minded weirdos like us at DK Vine, then it's definitely just worth, you know, tuning in and, and checking out how we have our fun with the game, which is, I, I, I would venture to say, quite different from how the popular Sea of Thieves streamers have fun with the game. Uh, we're, we're more Morningstar and less Prideful Dawn. Also, way, way more um, references to 40-year-old bands. Yes, yeah. and Grab by the Ghoulies. So uh, we, we know what the kids want from Twitch uh, check it out. But we also stream other DKU games, of course. 
I do DK Vine done slow, generally on Wednesdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 6.30 p.m. BST. Right now, I am finishing up Banjo-Kazooie, the original N64 version at that. And uh, then I'll move on to another DKU game and then another DKU game. And it's, it's DK Vine done slow. I play the games very slowly, drawn out, focusing on the details. And... Yeah, it's 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 like oh, people like speed running. Well, let me do the opposite of that. I I really know how to cultivate an audience. Then we have the Idaho crew. They stream Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. It's 1 a.m. Wednesday morning in the UK. So apologies there, but they stream a very eclectic mix of DKU games, and they will generally play a different game every week. Right now, they are in the middle of their Banjo-thon. They're playing all of the Banjo-Kazooie games chronologically, minus the mobile games. And I, 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 they're, they're not separating out the original N64 editions of Kazooie and Tui from the XBLA editions, but whatever, whatever. They're playing most of them chronologically, sort of. So check it out. <laughs> And, you know, Cameron, and really the listeners at home, if you're like me and you've ever wanted to pan-pan on a discarded drum in order to summon a megalodon that'll really get the party started, you'll be in need of an ancient temple deep underground. Not something that one has easy access to. But if you have a grocer that provides a fine selection of craft beers and a valid ID to prove that you're of drinking age, you can easily summon the next best thing to a party mag. A land shark! Yes, Jimmy Buffett's land shark island-style lager is the taste that goes down smooth and cool, even if you've got the fiery rage of an ashen lord building inside of your bones. And why poison your rivals and your own crewmates with a spiked stew to get ahead in life when you can all just chillax with a land shark and have a few laughs instead? Land shark, island-style lager. If I'm plugging it, Jimmy Buffett must be paying me. And if I'm taking Jimmy Buffett's money, you know I must think it's good. Well, all right. Uh, Heart of Fire, Cameron. As I said, it is the second official Sea of Thieves novel. It's, uh, you know, to, to separate it out from all of the Sea of Thieves fan fiction out there. And by or the, the Sea of Thieves um, comics or... Right, yes. I don't, I don't know. What would you call the Tales from the Sea of Thieves book? What is I, that? I've described it as an in-universe ledger that you can hold in your hands. It, it's, it's almost like a physical artifact from the Sea of Thieves made a reality and and kind of pulled into uh your your grubby mitts but uh yes this this is a a full-length novel the second one the second one in the dku uh, because we are now in this era of the dku where we're getting officially licensed expanded universe material rather than stuff like the Donkey Kong Country juvenile novels back in the day, which, you know, were, were licensed, but it was never done in, in the sense that, oh, this is going to be in can this is going to be in canon. This is going to be done in concert with the developers of the games. Yeah, I don't know if this is like still a a novel concept considering the rest of the DKU up until this point, but this is like 
a very rare instance where we get tie-in media that will be reflected in the game itself. Yeah, yeah, it, and and there has already been a bigger back and forth between the expanded universe of Sea of Thieves and the game itself, where characters that debut first in the novels or the comics will eventually find their way into the game. References to events that happen in the EU uh, pop up in the games. Like, everything is is kind of made on an equal footing they're, like they, they've got this this grand master continuity map that that they're all adhering to and uh that's mostly the hard work of chris alcock along with adam park pete hence uh mike chapman and, and others at rare who keep the tangled web of continuity of sea of thieves uh up and running and it's, it's made even more complicated when dk vine comes in because then we're like ah but it also ties into the rest of the shared universe so you've got to factor in 40 years of games essentially um but it's amazing that nothing has collapsed under its own weight yet yeah it, i mean th there have been some i guess minor hiccups here or there but nothing that can't be hand waved away which I, I don't have any examples, you know, at, at the forefront, but, um, but yeah, this, this like is the handful of times I think it has happened. It's been paved over so well that you don't really catch it. Right. Just like any living shared universe, it, it's kind of this, this living thing, this organism that the stewards and, and creators who contribute to it, you know, they don't have full control over it. It just kind of has a mind of its own after a while. And uh, so you, you kind of got to accept the hiccups along the way, but generally they're good at making sure those uh, hiccups are properly stifled um, when, when they do erupt from the mouth hole. But uh, yeah, th this is this is a sequel of sorts to the first novel, Athena's Fortune, but it's got a mostly new cast and a different focus. Um, I, I do want to point out really quick to all of you obsessive compulsive perverts out there like me who are bothered by this. Uh, Athena's Fortune was published by Insight Editions. While Heart of Fire is published by Titan Books. And as a result, the format of the book is different. Heart of Fire, I think, is the size of sort of a more traditional trade paperback these days, whereas Athena's Fortune was taller and, and wider. And so they will not sync up on your bookshelves, unfortunately. Uh, think of it, if you really have a problem with it, think of it as when they changed up the Super Nintendo cartridges. Uh, because, you know, originally the Super Nintendo cartridges were kind of uh, plump and smooth on the bottom. And then, like, midway through the console's life, the, suddenly the cartridges were indented at the bottom, and they kind of had that slope. And, you know, so, like, the Donkey Kong Country trilogy was indented with a slope, but you compare that to something like Super Mario World or Mario Paint or something, and it's like, oh, no, that's, that's big and puffy at the bottom. Oh, why did, what, what happened? And so, you know, you've got an incongruity in your game library, but we learned to live with it then, and we'll learn to live with it now. 
well, you know, Sea of Thieves just has to balance the space on your bookshelf. So, you know, it's it gets to have a galleon-sized book and a brigantine-sized <laughs> book and a couple of sloop-sized books maybe in the future. Yeah, and then you can have smaller books that you can attach to the back, like a rowboat. Uh, Titan has published nearly everything else in the Sea of Thieves EU, minus, like, the role-playing game. So it makes sense for the novels to be done by them as well. Yeah, the books have been through a few different publishers. I think Dark Horse published the art book. Right, I'm not including the art book because that's kind of an out-of-universe, um, right. behind-the-scenes look. But yeah, everything for the EU, comics, the Tales book, that was all done by Titan. So I, it makes sense that it's all under their umbrella now. But yeah, if, if it bothers you that Athena's Fortune has a different format, then you're, you're just kind of have to whistle past that graveyard, unfortunately. But, you know, we, we can talk all day about the size of the book and the difference between trade paperback and and the the kind of different formats publishers are playing with to get a more comfortable handhold on their products. But first things first, Cameron, when we're actually discussing the meat and potatoes of the story... You know, I, I knew I was going to like the book, right? Like, that was never really a question for me. I, w- I was looking forward to this book almost as I was an actual game release, which, you know, says a lot about how much I thought of Athena's fortune. Chris Alcock, the author, like, let's be upfront, he's always been a friend of the site. He's always been a, a grand ally of DK Vine. And, uh... So I loved Athena's Fortune, even without that personal connection, that familial touch. I I still really loved it. And part of that is because, you know, in many ways, Chris is like-minded. He he gets what we're about, and he, you know, we're on the same wavelength most of the time. So it's not surprising that I would like his books. But, you know, I didn't have any expectations of adoring heart of fire as much as i did or how definitely i did get into it and how much it resonated with me compared to athena's fortune and i don't like doing this thing where it's like oh i like heart of fire so much more than athena's fortune because it sounds like i'm selling athena's fortune short but yeah heart of fire uh surpassed it i think in most respects that matter to me yeah it's it's a Certainly a very interesting thing to look back on reading Athena's Fortune and reading this because Athena's Fortune happened so early in the game's life. The landscape is just completely different. Yes. And I wondered, like, if that would, like, severely, severely impact, like, my experience reading it or um, the way it was written. Um, I feel like Things are definitely firing on all cylinders um, with, like, perfectly in tune with the game itself in the in this. And mm. it's, I, I don't know, like, I'm not saying, I don't want to draw a hard line, like, do I definitely, do I definitely prefer one book or the other? But yeah, I think, I think Chris outdid himself here. And I loved Athena's fortune. Yeah. I, one thing that was immediately apparent to me, and this is going to sound like, cause, cause there's no way to really phrase this without, without 
making me sound like I'm ragging on Athena's fortune or that I like that. That's not my intent here. But one thing that was readily apparent to me when I started reading Heart of Fire was the confidence of of Chris as a writer, as a novelist. It was just in abundant how efficiently he set up the uh, the twin cast, the, the the two crews that are the focal point of this novel. He did it with such like again like efficiency and, and almost sleight of hand, where you knew everything you need to know about them by the end of their introductory chapters, and then you were off to the races. It it, it was just amazing to me and i think as you said one advantage was of course it is the second novel and it was written well after the game was released while athena's fortune had more of a parallel writing development with uh, the development of sea of thieves i think that's even part of the like the more apparent confidence in this book because i think athena's fortune had kind of an unfair burden of needing to talk around things that may or may not have been in the game because it was written as the game was in development. Obviously, this was too because the game is in ongoing development. But you can kind of take for granted um, like things that... Obviously, you want the book to be accessible to people who don't play Sea of Thieves, but you can also write the book knowing from a place that, okay, if I offhand mention this thing that is in the game... It's definitely going to be in the game in this form. Players will know what I'm talking about. Yes. And as we, you know, learned during our interview with Chris um, back in season eight, 2020, you know, he wrote Athena's Fortune, you know, while the game was still being formed. So he did have to kind of skirt around some things or be more vague. But also, you know, he had to really set up the Sea of Thieves in in and of itself. I mean, the Sea of Thieves was kind of a character in, in Athena's fortune. You know, Ramsey's crew and Lorena's crew, they both had to navel gaze, no pun intended, at the wonders of the world around them and really sell that to the reader. And here, that familiarity is kind of just assumed and... That really allows the focus to be more on the characters and just they quickly, I was going to say hit the ground running, but I guess they quickly set sail and and make you care about the entirety of the cast and their adventures and their pursuits and desires. And there's less time being just, you know, spent explaining things like the Devil's Shroud or, you know, how healing works in Sea of Thieves or or any of that. It, it's all just kind of assumed that the reader will know either from Athena's Fortune or by virtue of playing the game for, you know, upwards of four years or more. So, yeah, I, I think because of that, Chris had a a greater command of what he needed to do and could do and did it. I mean, uh, and that's not to sell Athena's fortune short because Athena's fortune was the novel. It was supposed to be at the time it was released, but heart of fire, just, you couldn't do heart of fire as the first novel. Um, but as a second novel, um, the differences between it and Athena's fortune are apparent and appreciated. Absolutely. And um, it is of course the, 
the second novel and also the second novel to use this conceit of following uh, the POV of two different crews, like, concurrently. Yes, and, and it's done slightly differently than Athena's Fortunes. Okay, so first of all, the story is ostensibly about the final days of Flameheart's original campaign of terror on the Sea of Thieves. And this is back when Captain Flameheart was a regular skeleton lord and not a flaming orange cloud in the sky. This this is like the flame heart of the cinematic trailers, of the statue at Rare, of the merchandise they released of him. Um, it, it's the skeleton lord Flameheart, not the angry ghost man Flameheart. And as such, this takes place eight years before the Seabound Soul Tall Tale. And that would, I mean... Time is fluid in the Sea of Thieves, but we'll say that's roughly nine-some years before the events of the game begin, uh, March 2018, our time. But the focus isn't really on Flameheart. It's more on the two crews who get swept up in the drama around Flameheart. The crew of the Morningstar, which consists of Captain Eli Slate, Dinger, the most hard-living 19-year-old there ever was, Fontaine, <laughs> the pompous French philosopher, and newcomer Jill, the shipwright apprentice. And then we have the newly formed crew of the Prideful Don, and that is Captain Harry Harkley, uh, Karen, which seems like an apropos name for somebody sailing in service of Flameheart. Uh, it's Karen with an I, not an E. Um, and a K. And a kid, yeah, yes. Um, <laughs> Jules and Scraps, no relation to longtime conversation listeners. Flameheart uh, does appear, although he's not physically present until the conclusion of the story, really. Whereas Athena's fortune jumped between two time periods uh, of Ramsey's crew and, you know, in, in the past and Lorena's crew in the present of the book. These are both contemporary uh, crews that are having voyages and adventures that relate to one another and take place concurrently. So it's 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 different. Yeah, you're you're in kind tone. of watching like two points on a graph slowly converge. Yeah, yeah. So there 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 are some jumps in time here and there. Like the prologue takes place uh, decades before the events of this book. The, the prologue feels like it's um, dipping toes in for the people who are fresh off of Athena's fortune to kind of get them ground footing with familiar characters. Yes. Uh, w without getting too much into it, the prologue takes place sort of in the middle of the time jump in Athena's fortune uh, after the parlay at Golden Sands Outpost. And uh, we, we kind of pick up in the middle of those years. But uh, Flameheart uh, does appear in a brief interlude that's really the only dedication to his backstory that you'll find in the novel. And I know there are probably some Sea of Thieves lore hounds out there who are hoping the entire thing would be about Flameheart, like a, a villain origin story. But honestly, I don't think there's much story to tell. And to be fair, like Athena's fortune 
is like I think I can spoil Athena's fortune yes. for people who haven't read it. Um it is a surprise villain origin story for the Gold Hoarder. Um Yes, yes. But I, I know like when when this book was announced, there are a lot of like Sea of Thieves heads out there who were like, Oh yeah, Flameheart book. We're finally gonna get Flameheart's backstory. Long live Flameheart. But like I said, I don't. I don't think there's really a, a meaty story to tell there, and I'm not just saying that because he's a skeleton. You know, Flameheart's a bastard, and he became an even bigger bastard. The end. Like I, I don't want to get into it too much because again, we're not trying to give away the game for people. But um, I could see some people being upset with the way Flameheart's um, backstory is handled here. But the reason that I love it is. Because it's not what people might expect. Yeah, you know, were were this a product of a different era, like 2005 or so, then yeah, I could see Flameheart getting this big, almost sympathetic origin story that kind of makes you look at him in a different light. Like, oh, maybe he's an anti-hero or what a tragic backstory. Yeah, he's a villain, but it didn't have to be that way. And I enjoy that Flameheart is just an unrepentant shithead because there are just some unrepentant shitheads out there and we don't need to empathize with them or yeah, this mythologize is, them. This is like tuning into the Dateline special on Flameheart and finding like his neighbors talk about, yeah, yeah, he used to like burn squirrels in the yard. <laughs> but other than that, he seemed like such a nice guy. You know, his ideology is toxic. And that's really what you need to know about Flameheart. But his followers are, are granted that sympathy that were, you know, that, that maybe some people were hoping for Flameheart. We're even forced to see things from their point of view, however misguided that point of view may ultimately end up being. And um, so, so it's not like this is just a, a study of blacks and whites, you know, like ultimate contrast, good versus evil. There's plenty of nuance in these characters, just like there is in Sea of Thieves itself. Which I think is a more interesting premise for a story, which is not like, how did the scowly, ominous, yelling skeleton man um, turn out this way? It's how did the ominous, burning skeleton man who yells threatening everybody actually sway people to his side right yeah and and that's what this novel really focuses on and it really focuses on the divergent philosophies about being a pirate what that means on the sea of thieves because yeah they're all pirates that you have to keep that in mind like the morality scale here there's really no white hats. It, they're they're all criminals, but it's just a matter of well, are you uh, a criminal who stands for something, or are you a criminal who wants to just tear it all down? And and so that's that's kind of interesting. Like even somebody who is relatively virtuous, like Eli Slate, uh, he's he, he's still a lawbreaker. He's still somebody who's thumbing his nose at what uh, society dictates is acceptable. 
And so that, that, that's, that's where the nuance, that's where the interesting character development really shines through. Not so much Flame Art. Flame Art is an instigator. And I think that's all he really needs to be. You, you can say, oh, he's a cool villain. I really love his design. But it's more about what this evil mastermind can do to other people that, that makes the story worth reading. That said, if you're reading the story because you want to read about Flameheart doing cool shit, still read it. There is yeah. that in here. <laughs> yeah, you you can also see him uh, sort of being a deadbeat dad. It's great. W- without getting too much into it, did you have Harry Chapin's Cats in the Cradle playing in your head during the interlude? No. Oh, no, okay. I did not. All but right. <laughs> that is funny. <laughs> so... The crew of the Morningstar, they heavily factored into the tall tales in Sea of Thieves. Two, two of them, specifically, Fate of the Morningstar and Revenge of the Morningstar. And amusingly, Revenge of the Morningstar was probably my least favorite tall tale throughout, of like all of the original, what, nine tall tales. And I know part of that is just mechanically, it kind of... Makes you do something a little bit frustrating. Yes, but. yeah. It's funny how, you know, Sea of Thieves can strike you depending on the mood you're in any given day and how two people can walk away with completely differing opinions on how content was executed. But for me, Revenge of the Morning Star, as you said, it was just a mechanically frustrating tall tale. But also because I just felt like the mythologizing of the Morning Star crew fell a bit flat with me because they weren't really characters we knew all that well. And and they were kind of built up and romanticized. And it was just like, we, we barely know these yeah, characters. Um, like the, those two tall tales are like the crew of the morning star is central to both of them. Hence the name. But mm-hmm. when I think of those two tall tales of like, if you were to ask me like, who is the star? Who are the stars of them both? I would say, Oh, it's the Ferryman and Grey Marrow. Right. They're the standouts. And yeah. Slate and his crew are a means to an end within yeah. their story. Yeah. It's, so, you know, the, the, they fell a bit flat with me at the time. But really, that makes them all the riper for an extended look at their exploits in novel form. And that allows them a chance to have layers and be fleshed out and make you care in a way that the game never could make you care about them. That's that's the advantage these novels and this tie-in expanded universe media has is it can take these disparate characters from the game that you may not have thought much of and suddenly make you care a great deal about them, therefore making it all the richer when they do appear in Sea of Thieves. Yeah, it, it completely reframed them um, because I... I think we replayed Fate of the Morning Star after I had finished the book, and it turned the experience from "Oh, I'm seeing, I'm meeting four new faces" to "Oh, I'm seeing four old friends again." Yeah. As far as the novels go, Eli Slate did briefly appear during the pivotal parlay uh, chapter at Golden Sands Outpost in Athena's Fortune, but this is our first real look at the inner workings of his ship and his crew. And his crew consists, at least at the start, of Eli Slate himself, 
19-year-old Dinger, which, again, I keep harping on the 19-year-old fact because when we replayed... Yeah, when we replayed The Tall Tale, there is a an excerpt in the book identifying Slate's crew that says, um, marked under his name, 19 Summers, which we take from context to be his age because um, a similar entry for Slate is in his 60s, yeah. which would be... Which would fit for him. He's a he's a he's like a graying up there man. Yeah. So when I was first reading the book, you know, I obviously I forgot about the smaller details of the tall tales. So I was picturing picturing Dinger as like mid thirties at the earliest. I I I had this completely different vision in my head, and then we played the tall tale, and it's just like, wait, nineteen, really? Uh, he doesn't even look like 19 because he's got the big like mutton chops and he's a he's a very large man with um a lot of facial hair yeah which in in the book that you find in sea of thieves also doesn't help because the very first picture you see of him is in black and white and makes him look like he has gray hair right so dinger of course if you don't know is actually a reference to project dream as edson's dog or was it Edson's dog, or was it the dog of somebody else? Uh, it, it's a dog. Um, a I don't dog. remember yeah. if it's specifically Edson's or not. There's I feel a dog. like I want to say it was, but I there's so much I don't know about Dream, or that I think I know about Dream, and it turns out I don't. Right, and it doesn't help that Dream's development altered who the characters were o- over any given time. So Dinger was a dog in Project Dream, and he, he's... The, the name was repurposed here. Now, that doesn't mean we won't eventually see a dog named Dinger, but whether or not he's named after this Dinger or Dinger is named after the dog, who knows? <laughs> but, um, and also, it, it's, it's just funny how the names in Project Dream I continually got wrong because I, I always called Edson Edison and I always called Dinger Digger because you would think a dog would be somebody who would dig. But anyway, and then we've got Fontaine, yeah. who, as I mentioned, is a French philosopher with a sort of morose attitude about everything. And it was funny playing The Fate of the Morning Star Tall Tale while reading the book, because I, I feel like Dinger and especially Fontaine, from the context of the tall tale after the book, they seem flanderized in the tall tale. They seem to highly exaggerated funhouse mirrors of what's in the book. Like just their their uh, more comedic traits, highly exaggerated. Yeah, and it's just... it, it's the difference between writing characters who you have to establish in the span of like one scene who you may not ever see again versus following them for an entire novel. I likened it to in Doctor Who when past doctors come back for multi-doctor stories. The past doctor is always kind of portrayed as a heightened version of themselves with all of their tics like uh, dialed up to the extreme to provide that contrast with the current doctor. And and that's what it felt like they were doing with Dinger and Fontaine, even though that was their first appearance and the first time they were actually written for. I I remember distinctly, like, during the stream, we were reading Fontaine's dialogue, and I, like, because I knew people were watching the stream with us, I just, like, took an aside and said, like, I promise he's not this obnoxious in the novel. <laughs> yeah. No, Fontaine was quite <laughs> enjoyable in the novel. Um, but I, I, I love him and... The, the the recurring dynamic between him and Dinger, which is generally Fontaine will say something like 
using way bigger words than he has to, and Dinger will completely misinterpret what he said. Yeah, it's the old uh, slobs versus the snobs dynamic, you know, Caddyshack. It's it's the the oldest way to have contrast at a spicy relationship between two characters. So, you know, it's yeah, they're it's appreciated. They're great. I loved them in this book. Yeah, and and Eli Slate was was a nice protagonist too. And he he's interesting because he's a former military man who essentially broke bad and became a pirate, but he still has this code of ethics, this like sense of duty and responsibility to his crew, even even making them dress up in matching uniforms. He's probably I'd say he's like maybe the most like unambiguously like good guy on the Sea of Thieves that exists right now. Yeah. I I, I would say so, yeah. He he's I mean he's a little bit more rigid and uptight as compared to a Ramsey or um, I'd say like traditionally like like in the way that like you'd hold up like oh Superman in DC versus like the Flash or Batman, right? He he's kind of like uh, your your stock character from like a Horatio Hornblower or Master and Commander or something like that. Um, yeah, the like honorable, clean cut, stern guy. Yeah, right. But as we've said, like it's shades of gray all over the place because it's the Sea of Thieves and. Right. The way Slate is does rub people the wrong way. Of course. And, however, the POV character, really, of the Morningstar chapters, and I probably quietly the entire book at, at the end of it, is Jill, who is a shipwright apprentice who dreams of becoming a pirate and wants to sail on the Morningstar because it's such a fantastic galleon. And, you know, interestingly, this puts the entire book sort of at a narrative disadvantage that Chris had to overcome because we who played the tall tales know what becomes of Jill and the crew of the morning star in their titular tall tales. And we know their story has a less than happy ending as far as anything can truly have an ending on the sea of thieves and while Jill doesn't really have a villainous destiny, she's definitely set up to have a big fall, a, a big fall from grace, a shameful moral failing that ultimately she has to redeem herself from. And so, honestly, like, I, I made Breaking Bad joke, but it was a trip reading this directly after we finished watching Better Call Saul, uh, because... That was a pre- speaking of characters who debut being cartoon characters yes. and then show yes. up in depth in the long term stories. It, it's funny because I kept seeing parallels to Better Call Saul because that's another prequel that had that problem to overcome. Because here we have this quasi sympathetic hero who who we know ultimately becomes somebody who we don't want to root for, and. Like Better Call Saul, Heart of Fire has to overcome this by telling such a compelling story that you don't care about knowing what's the end of the story. It's a hard thing to accomplish. Like, and I mean, I, I've said this before. Like, I remember a time where I was frustrated with the announcement of Better Call Saul because they announced, oh, um, 
Jonathan Banks won't be returning to community because he's going to be in the prequel to Breaking Bad. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, he, they're going to take a character out of my like favorite show on TV to tell this prequel story that doesn't need to exist so they can ring some more bucks out of Breaking Bad. And I was so, so wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I mean, core to that point, like when you were talking about the the moral ambiguity of the CFDs, like in my head, playing there was um, Mike Ehrmantraut's speech of like, it doesn't have to make, you did a thing that was against the law that makes you a criminal. It doesn't have to make you a bad person, <laughs> right? but it does make you a criminal. Right. And, and that really is kind of the ethos of Sea of Thieves, and especially this conflict between people like Eli Slate and the crew of the Morningstar, who do represent something, um, and Flameheart and the crew of the Prideful Dawn, who represent something else. And where we see their interests actually intersect and where they may have this commonality of viewpoints is really interesting. Uh, going back to Jill really quick, like I said, we, we know the end of her story, but that doesn't really factor into the book itself, aside from maybe a passing line or two. Um, the, the Tall Tales are really, really almost serve as kind of a sequel to the novel in some respects, but I appreciated that Jill being a uh, shipwright apprentice, which was set up in the tall tales as kind of a purely functionary part of the story because they had to take this stock background NPC character and kind of expand on her a little bit uh, to, to serve the function be like, Oh, actually this character who's been here this whole time. Guess what? But you know, you would think that having Jill as a shipwright would have just been this throwaway thing, but what Chris did was he took that and he made it a vitally important part of not just who she is, but also how the story would unfold because it gave her this unique skill set, outlook, and knowledge base that aided the Morning Star, you know, up to and including the unveiling of the MacGuffin of the book, which is a weapon of the ancients that is required or they think is required to fell Flameheart and his forces. Yeah, I, I think it retroactively gives the reveal in that tall tale a lot more weight, really. Yeah, I mean, it gives the entirety of the this. tall tale more weight. <laughs> I mean, that's a recurring theme throughout this book is just, I appreciate all of the in-game content with the Morningstar crew a lot more because of this book. Absolutely. I mean, it's a like, perfect compliment to it. You know, captaincy was recently added to the game, and we we can finally sail on ships that we name and that belong to us, rather than just the system of loading into the game, and you're provided with a ship that you can decorate with your own cosmetics, but it's not really yours, so... And a, a blank nameplate taunting you. <laughs> yes, for four years, but we we do have captaincy in the game now we have our own ships dk vine sails on a galleon named the dreadfully evil named after our own helmost and you know when, when i was trying to break down what i wanted the dreadfully evil to look like i also thought about what i wanted it to represent and this is before i even read heart of fire right and i i eventually like settled on the whole from the Morning Star, the kind of red and dark blue, almost black paint scheme that um, really made the the dreadfully evil pop. But I also just thought, like, you know, 
what kind of pirates do I want us to be? And I, and I, even, even if I didn't really care that much about Eli Slate at that point, I did remember him from Athena's Fortune and the Parlay chapter. And I was like, yeah, that would be kind of fun to have the crew of the Dreadfully Evil honor the crew of the Morning Star who came before them with this paint scheme. And, and that's made even more resonant since finishing the novel after 3 a.m. this morning. <laughs> So I'm glad I did that. And we also have a, so the crew of the Morningstar, they have a bear figurehead, right? Uh, and we on the Dreadfully Evil, we have a bear and bird figurehead that's patterned after a cave painting done by the ancients that basically prophesizes Banjo and Kazooie, the coming of Banjo Kazooie one day. I remember Athena's fortune hit so early that a lot of us like did think when the t- it mentions in text, because obviously the novel's not illustrated, that e- Eli's ship has a big bear on the front of it. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of us thought, oh, that's the banjo figurehead. Um, come the tall tale in the game, it's definitely a different bear, but one that's like very stylistically similar. Yeah, so I, I like that it, from our own character's perspective, we can continue the, the I guess, lineage of the Morningstar, at least spiritually. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it really worked out well and it like provided just this insight into who Jill was that, you know, maybe this kind of just throwaway thing from the tall tales designed to make you go like, oh, this NPC turned out to be something completely different than I thought. It, it actually is fleshed out in a very meaningful way. And that's, that's what makes me so in awe of what Chris does here because, um, Sometimes the the best creative works come with strict parameters, right? When you have free reign to do anything you want, that freedom can be overwhelming and you you may not you may not actually produce something to the best of your ability, but when you have to work within the strict confines of what's already been established and you know, we know this happens to the characters and this is everything we know about their backstories and their past. And he's able to take that and make something really compelling out of it. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just crazy to think about the evolution of the novel coming after all of that stuff in the tall tales. Now the, as, as I mentioned, there is a MacGuffin um, that, the characters of the Morning Star are trying to uncover because the narrative crux of the story is that Flameheart is making his final moves towards complete domination and ruin of the Sea of Thieves because he wants to eliminate the cushy trappings that Ramsay the Pirate Lord helped establish with the training companies. There, there's a big thing, there's a big undercurrent behind a lot of the characters where they hate more than anything, the grand maritime union, which is sort of the stand in for the East India company in sea of thieves. It's, um, it, it's just this, this big, um, capitalistic, imperialistic, colonial, you know, uh, force, uh, uh, on the seas. And a lot of people came to the sea of thieves to escape, the tyranny of the Grand Maritime Union. The Grand Maritime Union has kind of been this grand, unseen, potential enemy in Sea of Thieves throughout 
you know, the the four and a half years the game has been out. With like some hints here and there that they're like slowly digging their claws yeah. into it. Yeah, like the, the the funny thing about Sea of Thieves, for those who don't know, is that it's continually juggling like three or four antagonists in the air at one time. So it, it's not just like, oh, Flameheart is the primary antagonist of Sea of Thieves right now. It's like, well, we've got Flameheart. We've got the Dark Brethren now. We've got the Grand Maritime Union, like looming over everything. So there, there's always this sense of foreboding of like what's going to be the next shoe to drop but a- anyway like the the introduction of the trading companies like the merchant alliance and even you know the order souls or gold hoarders um that's really chafing a lot of the pirates because they feel what they went to the sea of thieves to escape from is now slowly encroaching upon this supposed wild west of piracy yeah, it's this, like, push and pull between, like, do you see the trading companies as this, like, bastion of, like, a way for people on the Sea of Thieves to support themselves, like, safely and, like, kind of support each other? Or do you see it as, like, this transparent introduction of, like, capital capitalists taking advantage of pirates and just telling you, no, 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 we're the good ones? Exactly, exactly. And... So, you know, Flameheart, what he represents to a lot of the pirates is tearing down that structure, uh, that order that Ramsey is encouraging, and, and to make the Sea of Thieves a truly wild place once again. And, of course, Flameheart would rule as the new pirate king, but, you know, if, if he's the means to an end, so be it. So Ramsey, the pirate lord... He enlists the crew of the Morningstar to help find this weapon of the ancients that is believed can be powerful enough to destroy Flameheart. And we're left, we're purposely left in the dark about what this weapon of the ancients is until its ultimate unveiling. But, um, Ramsey, Pirate Lord, he he's, uses the research of an exiled Skelly from Flameheart's forces named Edmund. And Edmund becomes the unofficial fifth member of the Morningstar crew. And I have to say, Cameron, Edmund, from the outset, instantly became my favorite character of the novel. 100% agreed. And I think part of that is just the strength of the premise that, oh, one of the people we're going to follow is a talking, friendly skeleton. That's... I'm, I'm sold immediately. <laughs> There's just nothing funnier to me than an affable, friendly skeleton. And, I mean, that's why Mr. Ribs was such a delight in Grab by the Ghoulies and deserves to be held up in the pantheon of greatest rare characters, but never will be because the greater populace uh, won't give Grab by the Ghoulies a chance, much to the chagrin of every time we reference Grab by the Ghoulies on our streams and then lose viewers. But... Edmund was fantastic. I loved his introduction and reveal, which played with the cadence of a Goosebumps novel chapter break. I don't don't know how much uh, R.L. Stein you read in elementary school, Cameron, but Goosebumps... Not not very much, because I was a weenie who expected (laughs) them to be a lot scarier than they actually were. Yeah, so what (laughs) what Goosebumps would do, they, they would generally end chapters 
with this big supposedly horrifying reveal and then you turn the page and it's it just turns out the character was being a weenie and just imagining things <laughs> so it would be like and and then the character entered the classroom and was immediately greeted by a skeleton and then you you turn the page and you find out it was the skeleton in their science class, like the the model skeleton. Uh-huh. That's, yeah, so it, it just played with that kind of like cheeky R.L. Stein level of like, oh, we hooked you, but you can't stop reading, <laughs> which made made me laugh out hard. It's also the strength of telling the story in the form of a novel because. Like, I can imagine this as silly as I want yes, to, yes. whereas, like, if you tried to do it in any other medium, you'd probably have to, like, ratchet down how how goofy this sounds. <laughs> yeah, I know, I but know. But I, I love it so much. Ed- Edmund is great. I, you know, like, when I say Chris is on our wavelength, this is exactly what I mean, because this is, like, catnip to anybody who's been around DK Vine enough years that this this uh, this of course would be our favorite character and um yeah so as soon as edmund was introduced i think that's really what i was like all right i love this book like i i i was worried something was going to happen to edmund like i i was i was worried he was going to betray the crew or be like some sort of like trojan horse or he would just like go away but uh edmund turned out to be a fairly sizable character in the end of it and yeah uh, he he only gets cooler as the book goes on (laughs) i would say like it didn't really stop (laughs) i didn't really stop from the height of like being excited when he showed up i imagine we will have far more to discuss on edmund in an upcoming i think edmund is specifically why i didn't put the book down that evening I yeah. just like I didn't want to know what happens with Edmund. Right. Whenever whenever the book would roll back around to a Morningstar chapter, I'd be like, "All right, let's check in with Edmund." And, you know, not to the disservice of any of the other characters, but he was the breakout star by by far. Um, he was the Urkel or the Fonz of Heart of Fire. Like yeah, I want, I want now like an Edmund like, spinoff. Ch- Ch- Charlie Brown's great, but I want to see Snoopy on his doghouse fighting the Red Baron. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe just a, a full-on Edmund spinoff game, like a prequel or something, would, would suit me just fine. But there's also <clears throat> there's also a sixth member of the Morningstar crew, we, we mustn't forget, uh, a snake that's left behind from a merchant voyage near the beginning of the novel, a snake that they name Chomps. <laughs> so... I have to imagine the name was an intentional nod to the Donkey Kong country enemy. So the question is, was Chomps named by the crew of the Morningstar after the sharks that are known to patrol the waters of Crocodile Isle and DK Island? As the carnivorous plants seen in the retro games were named after the the sharks, or what? Is Chomps just like like, like to non-human like creatures in the Donkey Kong universe with the name like John or Michael is. <laughs> this is the John Smith of, of, of yeah, taxidermy. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I thought that um, chomps would have just been like a one-off joke, but chomps actually becomes like the mascot of the ship or like their animal buddy. It, it kind of a, a weird way. And, Again, when I say the author is on our wavelength, 
I was often worried about Chomps. I was like, nothing's going to happen to Chomps, right? Nothing's going to happen to Chomps. And it's, it's almost like he knew we would have that concern. And he was like, don't worry. I'm taking good care of chumps. You don't have this. This this isn't this isn't a story where the dog dies. Don't worry. It's not going to go down that route. No, you, we can't we can't have a Newberry Medal covering Flame Hearts <laughs> beautiful face on this cover. Um, by, by the way, um, just got to say um, this this cover art for this book um, by uh, Thomas Mahone, mm-hmm. fucking fantastic. It's gorgeous. Yeah, I f- would find myself. When I was picking up the book to read or putting it down for the night or or finally putting it down after 3 a.m. this morning, I would just stare at the little images of the morning star facing off against the burning blade. I just love the little detail that you can make out the silhouette of the bare figurehead on the front. And, you know, obviously, like, the focus is on Flameheart's skull on the horizon, but... Just everything about it is is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, it's it's a very striking image, and it's also very timely. I feel like this would be a book that people will pass during the Halloween season, and with just the orange font and just the the dark hues, it just seems like it's a very seasonally appropriate or upcoming seasonally appropriate if, novel to check out. If memory serves, I think it might have been you. Um, didn't you share a picture of? See if these like hanging out in a bookstore with like a bunch of other pirate fiction and just really standing out with this cover. Yeah, yeah. I, I wandered into a bookstore the week this book came out and because I was just like trying to buy several copies for various reasons. I like to, you know, have giveaway prizes for DK buying on social media. And also I was just looking for additional copies for myself because the copy I read is not the copy that goes on my bookshelf because I have to keep it pristine. And unfortunately reading this book, you will kind of crack the spine a little bit, but um, so I was just looking like there's a big problem of, Oh, you know, this, this cover is kind of slightly scuffed up. This one's got a little bend in the cover. Uh, so I, I was just on the hunt and I strolled it and sure enough, the book was on a table of like pirate fiction uh, along with Athena's Fortune and some YA um, fantasy yeah, stuff. Yeah, not, 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 not video game books, which is really, really neat to see. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway, uh, as we mentioned, you know, the novel does intercut chapter by chapter with another crew, but taking place concurrently with the events of the Morning Star. And finally, allowing the crews and their fates to converge. And the other crew, as we mentioned, is the Prideful Dawn. And that is a galleon that's kind of been commandeered by a band of outcasts looking to seek an alliance with Flameheart in order to reclaim what their idea of true freedom on the Sea of Thieves really is. And look, I was hesitant at first to spend any time with a bunch of assholes because as as I initially saw them, because, you know, times be tough, Cameron, and I'm so fatigued and I've, I've had to stop like doom scrolling the news and I don't want to be reminded of assholes. You know, uh, I, I don't need to be reminded. Yeah, of- yeah, I don't need to. I don't need to hear the justification why a bad person did a bad thing. They did the bad thing, and that's all I need to know. Yeah, I'm I'm too tired for that right now. So, you know, like I said, I, I was a little bit weary when, you know, we, we left the Morningstar and came to the crew of the Prideful Dawn for the first time. 
But the great narrative weight that Chris Alcock had on his shoulders trying to make them likable was definitely lifted up over his head. And by the end of the novel, I think I was just as captivated by the prideful Don's exploits as I was the Morningstar, which I did not anticipate. It really helped me, like, like them and, like, following their story that, um... The crew of the Prideful Dawn are all, like, kind of separated by, like, varying degrees to which they've drank in the Flameheart Kool-Aid. Yes, yes. And, and... Um, like, ranging from all in to entirely a victim of circumstance. Yeah, and, you know, as great as it was to not have Flameheart be sympathetic in any way, I think it was needed to be part of, of what made the Prideful Dawn's crew work from a reader's perspective. You know, the old adage that hurt people hurt people, I, I think can be readily applied to all four of these characters to some degree, because we get glimpses and little clues to their troubled childhoods and various reasons as to why they would take up the flag of a genocidal madman like Flameheart. Uh, like you said, varying degrees of being all in, um, because because some of the characters quickly have doubts about how far things are escalating, and to have that contrast and have that friction in the crew really made um, it a compelling read, especially like the way they would root and ground the characters in situations and also with characters that you may know from the game, and. I, I, I thought it was expertly handled. And one of the more effective and chilling sequences in the book are the dreams that uh, the captain, Harry Harkley, has about the abuse he suffered at the hands of his father when he was a child. And, and I think that's maybe the darkest path we've ever gone down in any rare production uh, because it's, you know, it's not sugar-coated. You, I mean, it, it's not like, traumatic like it's it's not like you're gonna get like pages and pages of child abuse but it's just done in a very chilling uh surprising way that that makes it dreamlike and and kind of exaggerated but you still feel the weight of what happened it's it's uncomfortable but it's not reveling in it yes exactly yeah um and and yeah so like Harry Harkley, he is the captain of the Prideful Dawn, or becomes the captain of the Prideful Dawn when they steal the Prideful Dawn um, from the outposts that they're on. And he he is the one who quickly um, becomes the most dedicated advocate of Captain Flameheart for varying reasons, as will become apparent as the book unfolds. And so he he's probably the closest one who you lose sympathy with. But I think keeping in mind that we do get the glimpses of his childhood from his perspective, we understand how he was led down that path. And we can feel sorry for him, even if ultimately, you know, we we are not meant to agree with him. But the uh, the, the crew members of Harkley are, I think far more sympathetic and that is Karen Jules and scraps. And uh, yeah, I was surprised at how quickly I gravitated to these three. And as you said, it, it uh, 
their little reactions and their the little interplay they have with each other and their captain really helps make them understandable and relatable in a way that I wouldn't have believed possible. And uh, I think with the exception of Harkley, um, like none of them feel like bad people when you're reading them. Yeah, they're 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 doing bad things and they've they've gone down a bad path, but they're not irredeemable. Jules in particular, I think, was the most sympathetic because she is literally only there out of like bad luck. Yes, yes. Like uh, she wasn't even like a like she's not in it for investment with Flameheart. She's in it because she just happened to be like near these other three when people <laughs> were angry with them like talking up Flameheart. She's completely a victim of circumstance and that that becomes a repeating element of her character where she's kind of just along for the ride and she quickly realizes like oh my god am I, I I'm in over my head aren't I um but she does strike up a camaraderie with Karen and Scraps. Scraps is the uh, n- named as such because he is the uh, cook on the ship and he just you know he makes it he makes a mean stew and scraps like doesn't seem so, so like again we talked about like varying degrees he doesn't seem so much like he is like all in on getting in flame hearts good books so much as he just is one of the many pirates on the sea of thieves who doesn't care for the trading companies right and, and we understand we're made to understand why he would have a an issue a philosophical issue with any trading company even if the, uh, the the primary source of his pain is the Grand Maritime Union. And, like, not entirely wrong. We know one of them is run by the Gold Hoarder in, like, a <laughs> shadow operation. Right, yeah. Um, Karen, I, I was surprised because I, I was initially made or, or initially assumed that I would dislike her uh, as much as I would dislike Harkley. Um, she, she goes through the ringer though, and she comes out on the other end. Um, I, I think. I, I definitely feel like you're set up to like, think poorly of Karen when she shows up and like kind of soften once you like observe the depth of her character a little bit more. Exactly. There, there is a, a pivotal moment that the crew experiences together where, you realize the depths of Harkley's devotion and it's a realization for Karen as well, where he may prioritize getting in good with Flameheart over the well-being of his own crew. And that's kind of this, this sobering wake up call for her and by extension, the other two. What I didn't expect from Heart of Fire when I set out to read it, was how damn resonant it was going to feel given what's been happening in the world. Oh, I don't know, the past decade or so, you know, with the rise of authoritarianism and, you know, there are many out there who feel like the only solution to the severe problems plaguing civilization is to hand the keys over to madmen and watch the entire thing burn down. And so I don't know if the parallels there were intentional or if it's just inescapable scene parallels in the fiction and media we consume during these times or if it subconsciously played out in the author's mind. But it really hit me as the story of the Prideful Dawn progressed, how we could be seeing the story of like our own relatives we don't really talk to anymore or, or you know, 
Um, you know, everybody has people in their lives that they've kind of distanced themselves from and why, why they were led down that road differs, but I, it really hit me when we got to the climatic final battle and seeing all the disparate and sometimes oppositional forces of the pirate Lord and the trading companies all allying in order to fend off Flameheart's tyranny and, and just seeing like all these just people from all walks of life say no we're t- we're done with this we're not going to let them destroy everything just out of pettiness and spite uh it 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 really made me like i actually like pumped my fist in the air a little bit you know you know you know rise of skywalker that star wars movie that that people don't seem to like that much i feel like what I they hadn't were noticed. what what they were trying to pull off in the final bits of rise of skywalker the message they were trying to convey with like the the galaxy finally standing up to palpatine and being like nah we're done with this um but but it was com- kind of completely like flaccid because they spent no time like establishing how lando reached out to everybody etc 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 I feel like Chris pulled it off. He pu- he pulled off what Rise of Skywalker couldn't because I pumped my fist in the air and I was like, "Yeah!" when everybody showed up and and it made me feel good about like the battles in reality, the, of, like what we have to achieve as a civilization, as a species, as a worldwide community to fend off the forces of darkness. And and I was just like, wow! I like it. It was the opposite of doom scrolling the news, reading us at three a.m. And I was like, wow! I feel good, and and it really like pumped me up to like want to like go out there and volunteer and, and like I, I don't know, but it also made me want to play Sea of Thieves a little bit more too. So <laughs> it's a it's a very I'd say it's a very cathartic feeling read to just. Yeah, see this this story play out in the way it does, um, and even like in a in a on a on a like a lighter note, it's also interesting to get this type of story being told fresh off of an in-game event in Sea of Thieves, where we literally had like the forces of do you want to do the right thing or do you want to do the bad thing because it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the for the the forces of the right thing actually won out. So it, it definitely made me like, it would have given this book such a weird layer. If things came out the opposite way in that in game event, <laughs> there's no way to coordinate that. But I, I was thinking that too. And I, I was thinking like what, what the message this book is conveying. Like it, it would have been completely undercut by the community had Golden Sands outpost like actually fallen. And and there is like a line or two set up in this novel that hints towards that uh adventure where, where Flameheart says, you know, maybe one day he'll wipe out Golden Sands. And I was like, ah, I, I wonder if that was an intentional nod or if that's just a complete mm. coincidence given the way we'll 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 have we'll have to ask Chris at some point. But yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't expect it to be such like a a feel good like triumphant thing, like because you're setting out to read something like Sea of Thieves, Heart of Fire, and Chris is a hell of a writer, he really is. But I, I'm not gonna like pretend like this is like up there with the works of Charles Dickens because it is tie in genre fiction for a video game. 
it, it, it can never be its own thing precisely because it does have to play in concert with everything else that came before it, including Chris's previous novel. And so I, I was expecting a really well-told yarn about the Sea of Thieves, about characters that we briefly met in Sea of Thieves and would, would maybe, you know, provide this nice little prequel that I could then mentally insert into my understanding of the world. I didn't expect it to be so life-affirming, <laughs> which is weird, <laughs> which is weird. And that was, that was the best surprise coming out of it was just how timely it felt given everything, you know? Yeah. Though, um, also, classic literature doesn't have enough talking skeletons. It does. It really does it. And I was just thinking, you know, what if Hemingway had just thrown in a talking skeleton in some of his works? Um, what, what if The Old Man in the Sea was, uh, was about a skeleton in the sea? Would kids, I don't know, take to classic literature far more? Would, you know, we be a more enlightened, uh, articulate, literate society? I think the answer is yes, because who doesn't love a talking skeleton? So I don't know, Cameron. Like, on honestly, I don't know. Because it's hard for me to know, because I'm so deep into Sea of Thieves. I'm so deep into Rare. I'm so deep into the DKU. I don't know if I could recommend Heart of Fire to our listeners who haven't played Sea of Thieves because I honestly can't divorce myself from how it would read if uh, if they haven't. Uh, I, I think Athena's Fortune worked rather well as an introduction to the Sea of Thieves, to, the, to this corner of the world. And Heart of Fire certainly could work as a standalone experience, but I think it would be far more impactful if you have some baseline understanding of the game because some of those big needle drop moments I don't think would really make sense to you unless you knew what it was referencing, what character uh, you were encountering. Um, But if you have played Sea of Thieves, then yeah, absolutely. You definitely need to pick this novel up today. Go out to the bookstore, order it online. It would in my opinion, only increase your passion for the game, which I think is the best thing that can come out of this expanded universe literature. I, I, we, I already mentioned Star Wars, and I mentioned Star Wars when we talked about Athena's Fortune, because Star Wars is my go-to example for an EU that I think increases your investment in the the more mainstream elements of that franchise, like the movies or the TV shows. Like if it wasn't for star Wars literature, would star Wars have gotten as big as it did in the nineties, even before the special editions and the prequels? I don't think so. And, you know, I, I look back at my own like fandom of star Wars, which has ebbed and flowed, you know, as, as I think most people's have over the years, but it was Shadows of the Empire that really made me a Star Wars fan because all of a sudden I had this kind of like secret story that not everybody knew about. I was like, oh, I know what happens between The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. I know who Dash Rendar is. Ooh, this this is cool. I have such a richer understanding of the movies now, which is bullshit because it's not even canon anymore. But you know what I mean. And 
<laughs> the, the great thing about the Sea of Thieves EU is I, I know how dedicated Rare is to it, and I know it won't be decanonized. They're not going to just chuck it out. The worst thing that you can do with like an, an expanded universe material like this is put out something that you don't doesn't feel like it matters. Exactly. This this feels like it matters. And I don't think it's essential to enjoying the game, but it will make you love the game even more. And I think that is the fine line to walk when producing something like this. So, I don't know. I'm excited to play Sea of Thieves tomorrow, Cameron, because it really did make me... Look at my own pirate character, Cousin Russell, in a new light. Because it, it you know, I've, I've always thought about what my pirate character represents and, and how he interacts with the world of Sea of Thieves. But I, I really hope this novel makes you at home ask what your pirate character, he or she or they, represent and, and stand for in the context of this grand shared universe. Uh, I, I think it will. I, I think reading this, you can't help but think, like, where do I stand in, in this story? And that's the great thing about Sea of Thieves is it does feel like your pirate character can influence the evolving world around them. And, and that's even much appreciated to Chris. There is a historian's note at the beginning of the novel. And... It starts off by saying, This story takes place roughly eight years before the events of the Seabound Soul, the fateful day that saw Sir Arthur Pendragon and a pirate crew inadvertently revive the notorious skeleton lord Flameheart. And for those who don't know, uh, that ambiguity there of Sir Arthur Pendragon and a pirate crew is intentional because it's designed to allow you to mentally insert your own pirate crew into that tall tale to each and every person who played that tall tale. You are the one who is referenced in that historian's note. And that's a little touch that I love that, you know, he didn't just come in and say, okay, well, I know everybody has their own personal canon, but I'm going to say it was Sir Arthur Pendragon and this crew, the end. You can't complain about it. It's canon now. Didn't do that. He didn't overwrite it. Um, and, and that that is that's much appreciated because it does make you feel like your personal experiences in the game matter. So, yeah, it, it definitely really makes me jones to want to play Sea of Thieves. And we get to play Revenge of the Morningstar tomorrow. That's that's just uh, that's just fortuitous timing. I don't know. So before we go, Cameron. There are some references I would like to point out that I feel oh. like would be appreciated by the DK Vine conversation audience. So do, do you tell. All right. As we mentioned, there is a snake named Chomps and you might be thinking, why didn't he name the snake Slippa? Well, okay. But it's named Chomps. All right. And he's a delightful snake. You're going to love him. There's a sequence where the Morningstar crew battles skellies on a fort and Jill picks up a barrel. Oh, yeah, she picks up a barrel. And what does she do with the barrel? Well, she rolls it down a flight of stairs, Donkey Kong arcade style, knocking out the skellies below. Now, if Chris wasn't thinking of Donkey Kong during this sequence, well, then he's a liar. Because, of course, he was thinking about Donkey Kong 
during this sequence. So there you go. For you Donkey Kong arcade fans out there, hello to Gibbon in the live stream. Uh, hello to Trey as well. An undercurrent of this story ties into the tall tales, as we mentioned. And an ability that some skeleton lords have to bind souls to objects, preventing them from moving on to the afterlife and resurrecting on the Fairy of the Damned. This is ultimately the fate of the Morningstar, after all. Well, early on, the crew of the Prideful Dawn meets a unassuming, kindly, old fisherman by the name of Tom Toggs. Tom Toggs. Now, Tom is ultimately locked inside of his own sloop's brig as Harkley sets the ship on fire. We never see Tom Tog's demise. But it got me thinking. What if Tom Tog's never makes it to the Fairy of the Damned? What if some skelly lord, I don't know, intervenes as Tom Tog's is left to burn, and Tom Tog's soul is bound to an inanimate object, as we see happen to other characters throughout this story. Something simple, perhaps, his soul could be bound to, I don't know, perhaps a tool or timekeeping device of some sort. What if Tom Tog's soul was put into... A stopwatch. I will ask Chris Alcock this to his face when we have him on the show for our annual Talk Like a Pirate Day episode. That's right. Hashtag Tom Togs is TT in Sea of Thieves. This has been a File 2 production. Terrico.